Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 184, Where Did Jesus Say, I Am God, Worship Me? This episode is following up on the previous episode of the Trinity's podcast called Challenge Unmet. In that podcast, I pointed out that over a year ago, I issued a serious and carefully sketched out challenge to apologists that constantly say that Jesus is God himself, and only one apologist has answered it, and it's not clear to me that Dr. James Anderson really is a Jesus-is-God apologist, but he does want to defend traditional small-c Catholic views in any case. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to interact with a couple of videos by Dr. David Wood. Why am I picking on Dr. Wood? Well, he's a philosopher. I think he can take it. I like him. He's a smart aleck. He's a natural polemicist. He's a good debater. He's a great YouTuber. And I think his intentions are good. He wants to make the gospel acceptable to Muslims so that Muslims will follow Jesus. I'm down with that. However, I think that unintentionally, he's doing some damage to the cause. He's doing the opposite of what he's meaning to do. The problem is, when it comes to Jesus and God, Dr. Wood's arguments and his interpretations of the Bible are pretty easy to criticize. The thing about our Islamic friends is they can read, they can interpret a text, and they can do basic reasoning. So if you give somebody a bad argument and you say, here's why you should accept the gospel, here's my bad argument, you might just make them smug. Like, oh, well, that's not a good argument, so now I don't have to seriously consider the gospel. Also, in some of the things he says, he's granting too much to the Muslim. He's making some concessions that a Christian should not make, and I'll explain what those are shortly. The challenge to Jesus as God apologist that we saw last time starts off like this. The first three steps are a mini three-step argument. Jesus and God differ. Things which differ are two. Therefore, Jesus and God are two. That is to say, they're not numerically identical. They're not one and the same thing, one and the same being, one and the same entity. They are two. How do you know? Because they've differed. There was a time, for instance, when Jesus did not want Jesus to be crucified. So he asked if he could be excused. This was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at that same time that Jesus did not want Jesus to be crucified, God wanted Jesus to be crucified. That was still part of God's plan. Of course, Jesus brought his will into line with God's. That's an inspiring part of the story. Anyway, that's one of many ways in which, according to the New Testament, Jesus and God have been different from one another. Okay, well then, we're talking about two beings. Because it's self-evident that things which differ, or even things which could possibly differ, or have ever differed, or will someday differ, things like that have got to be two and not one. They might be very similar, sure. They could be very closely related, but it can't be that we're really talking about one thing here and not two. Now, one through three, I think, are a sound argument. I think any Christian should accept that as a sound argument. If you deny the conclusion three, that God and Jesus are two, that is two beings, then you need to deny one or two or both. But you can't deny one, That's required by Scripture that Jesus and God differ. It's implied constantly, and you can't deny two because it's self-evident. It's like two plus two is four. 
Now, if you just affirm one through three, and then you go on to say that Jesus just is God himself, that is, that the two are numerically one, you've just contradicted yourself if you've just also agreed with one through three. And any book that implies one and two, and so therefore three, and which also implies that Jesus just is God himself, any book like that will be an incoherent book. So if the Bible does that, the Bible's incoherent. So apologists like Dr. David Wood, though they don't realize it, are asserting the Bible to be incoherent. Again, they do this by claiming that the Bible clearly identifies Jesus and God, and also, and this is the part they don't usually say out loud, but they're presupposing it, and rightly so, also they think the Bible distinguishes Jesus from God by portraying them as different at the same time. If they ever have differed, ever will differ, if they differ now, if they differ eternally, if they could just possibly differ, they're not numerically one. Because it's impossible for a thing to be and not be the same way at the same time. Of course, God and Jesus differ in the Bible. Jesus is the Son of God. God is not the Son of God. So they're not the same being. And it's fair to assume any self-evident truth when we're interpreting Scripture. So if you're reading an episode about, I don't know, King David, and you think, well, it says he has two wives at this time, and then while those two wives are still alive and married to him, he gets two more wives And then, on your interpretation, he only has three wives. Well, if that's what it's saying, then the author is confused, or there's a textual problem, maybe. There are sometimes textual problems about these number things, these number issues. But anyway, to the extent that you're sure that that's what the text really says, again, you're imputing confusion to the author. He thinks that you can have exactly four wives and also, at the same time, have exactly three wives. Well, that's ridiculous. So when you're interpreting scripture, you assume all the truths of math and logic, and you try as hard as you can to avoid attributing confusion to the author that you're reading. And it's no good to just admit that your reading is incoherent and then try to spin that as a virtue. It's no good to just call this a holy mystery. That's like putting frosting on a turd and calling it a cookie. It's just a turd with frosting. A contradiction, which has been dubbed a holy mystery, is still a contradiction, and we know that contradictions are false. If you say, well, it's just an apparent contradiction, okay, can there be apparent contradictions which are not real contradictions? Absolutely. But if something looks like a contradiction, and you go back and look at it again, it still looks like a contradiction, and that's a pretty firm and clear view that you have of it, then you should conclude that it's a contradiction. Okay, but then you're back to the this is uncharitable to the author point. Now, according to Jesus' God apologists, the New Testament is constantly implying and in obvious ways that Jesus can only be the one God himself. Now, every time you run into an interpretation like that, there will be an only God premise, which is either asserted or assumed. This is a claim that only God himself can something. And they then argue that Jesus can do that thing. Therefore, they conclude Jesus just is God. God just is Jesus. They're numerically one. Now, when they say Jesus is God, is that just shorthand for Jesus has a divine nature or for Jesus is a divine person within the Trinity? It seems not. Here's why. Look at the form, the logical structure of the argument. They say only God can fill in the blank, you know, be called something, do something. That word only is a quantifier. They're saying any being who can fill in the blank just is God. So for any being whatsoever, either that being can't fill in the blank, or that being just is God himself. 
if you give a logical analysis of that premise, it's going to have an identity symbol in it. I won't go into that here, but I have a link on the blog post for this episode called God and His Son, The Logic of the New Testament. If you want to know how the logical machinery works, it's explained there. It might clarify it if you're, say, a philosophy student. This is why people naturally read the conclusion as making an identity claim. You say, only God can do something, then anyone that can do that just is God, that is, is numerically identical to God. Now, in general, when it comes to these kinds of arguments, in my view, the second premise is going to be true. You know, Jesus can forgive sins, Jesus can do miracles, Jesus can raise someone from the dead, and so on. The problem is always going to be with premise one. Every premise I've ever seen like this is such that two things are true of it. First, the premise that only God can fill in the blank is going to be unsupportable by Christian scripture or by reason or by any combination of Christian scripture and reason. It will neither be self-evident, nor will it be derivable from the scriptures carefully interpreted. The second thing that's true of any such premise is that it will be refuted by clear, biblical counterexamples. In other words, to even say that only God can fill in the blank requires that you ignore something in the Bible, which is no good if you're a Christian. I'll show you how this works in a minute. Sometimes the apologist will just strongly assert the only God can fill in the blank premise as if it's an obvious truth. Interestingly, as we'll hear, sometimes he'll cite the Quran in favor of it, right? But maybe the Quran says it, but should a Christian agree with it? But in no case is this a self-evident truth. And you'll find that if you look carefully, their claim is contradicted by something that's clearly asserted or implied by the Bible. The apologist is just hoping you don't look there. But a diligent student of the scriptures will. And a stubborn and diligent Islamic friend will. They know how to look stuff up. They know how to try to interpret a text as consistent with itself. Some of them are very skilled at this. If you're going to just pretend that no one's going to look in this other part of the Bible, which refutes your general principle that only God can fill in the blank, the Muslim's going to beat you. You might look like a big man to your friends that are watching this debate happen, but you're going to lose the debate. That's not the goal, right? Goal is to win it. Goal is to make a sound argument, one which is valid and has true premises, and one which even your opponent should be compelled to accept. The first video we'll look at is from several years back. It's by Dr. David Wood. It's called, Did Jesus Claim to be God? Here's how he starts off. Muslims often present a challenge to Christians. Where did Jesus claim to be God? To which we can only reply, how are you missing this? If Jesus wasn't God, his claims make no sense because he said things that only God should ever say. Okay, there's the type of argument we talked about. And even though he's eager to put it in terms of Christians versus Muslims, of course, there are a lot of Christians who would ask the same question, where exactly did Jesus claim to be God himself? Because we just think he's the son of God. But he continues. As C.S. Lewis famously declared, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Now, what sort of things did Jesus say that a mere human being or a mere prophet shouldn't say? Let's take a look at one example of a statement that only God can truly make. And since the challenge we're addressing comes from our Muslim friends, we'll begin with the Quran. 
According to the Quran, the final judge of all human beings, the one who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, is Allah. In chapter 22 of the Quran, verses 56 to 57, the kingdom on that day shall be Allah's. He will judge between them. So those who believe and do good will be in gardens of bliss. And as for those who disbelieve in and reject our communications, these it is who shall have a disgraceful chastisement. The Bible agrees that while human beings can be judges in a limited sense, God is judge of the entire world. The prophet David says in Psalm 9, verses 7 to 8, The Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. In the book of the prophet Joel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, God says that he will one day gather all nations before him for the final judgment. So God, according to both the Bible and the Quran, is the final judge of all people. This means, of course, that anyone who claims to be the final judge of all people is claiming to be God. Nope. There's your problem right there. Why can't God judge all people through another as his agent? No reason is given. That would smooth it out really easily if Jesus says, I'm going to judge the world, and the Bible has said that God is going to be the judge of the world. Well, maybe God's going to do it through Jesus. Now, Dr. Wood said that the Bible asserts that no man could possibly do this, but of course it didn't say that. It just said that God is going to judge everyone. It didn't really say the way he was going to do it, did it? All right. Now he's going to try to get us to the conclusion of his argument that Jesus just is God and vice versa. Imagine the surprise then that Jesus' listeners must have felt when he told them that he's the one who will judge the world. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 32, Jesus, who refers to himself as the Son of Man, proclaims, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus is going to sit on the judgment throne and judge the world. He goes on to say in verse 34 that he will tell the people on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A few verses later, in verse 41, Jesus says that he will tell the people on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so what he's trying to show is that Jesus here in Matthew is just obviously implying that he's God himself. Because surely, surely, only God himself could judge all the human race. Surely, only God himself could be the final judge. Well, stop calling me surely. No, it doesn't follow. The Bible never says that. And there are two really obvious things in this passage that make clear that Jesus can't possibly be implying that he's God himself. First of all, he calls himself the Son of Man. This is a reference back to Daniel. In that famous passage, there's one like a Son of Man who is brought in to the throne room of the Ancient of Days and given an eternal kingdom. Hmm, who is this Ancient of Days? Oh yeah, that's obviously Yahweh. That's the one God. Okay, this one like a Son of a Man, a human-like or human person, is brought in and awarded an eternal kingdom by God. Of course, this is viewed as a messianic prophecy in the New Testament. 
So when he calls himself the son of man, everybody realizes that he's referring to this passage. Of course, he's not God. He's this other guy. Now, people fudge this. They say, well, it's a heavenly figure or a divine figure. Sure, divine figure in the sense that he has God's kingdom, that he's immortal and his kingdom will never end and so on. But yeah, this is somebody in addition to God. This is not God. Also, in the verse that he quoted, he said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Who is Jesus' Father in the New Testament? It's the one God. Of course, the saved are those who have been saved by God, in many cases through Jesus. Okay, so the king, the judge here, that's the Son of Man who's come in his glory, sitting on the glorious throne, the throne where God has placed him. He's talking to those who are saved and mentioning that they're blessed by God. So, no, Dr. Wood, this is not Jesus implying that he's God. It didn't even look like that at the start, though, because you didn't do anything to rule out that God could judge everyone through his human Messiah. But he's got more tricks up his sleeve. He's going to go to John now. Why is Jesus judging the world? Well, he explains why in John chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, where he says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Okay, so the Son has had judgment given to him, which is to say that the authority to judge has been given to the Son, to the man Jesus, by the Father. God has authorized his Messiah to judge. Now, our Muslim friends might come along and say, wait, God would never give that power to somebody. Well, says you. According to the New Testament, that's exactly what he did. The New Testament doesn't have the kind of worries about shirk or associating a being with God that the Quran does. Dr. Wood continues. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Notice what we have here. God the Father and God the Son. The Son judges the world so that everyone will honor the Son the same way we honor the Father. Not what it says. But we honor the Father because of his nature and attributes. The only reason we would ever honor someone the same way we honor the Father is if he had the same nature and attributes as the Father. But that would mean that Jesus has the same nature and attributes as the Father, which only makes sense in light of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Not according to the New Testament. Revelation chapter 5, vision of the heavenly throne room. This is what the worshipers say. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be a blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Did they worship Jesus there for having the divine nature, for being, say, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnibenevolent, omnipresent, necessarily existent, uncreated, so on? No. Were they worshiping Jesus? Absolutely. They're worshiping God and Jesus together. 
what were the stated reasons for the honor for the worship given to Jesus? It was what he did in serving God. It's his actions as the faithful servant, as the savior of humankind, who is faithful even through a really gruesome death that he did not want to go through. The passage doesn't need to be read as saying that people honor God and Jesus in exactly the same way, rather than just you honor God and also you must honor Jesus. When glorified, the man Jesus is worshipped. This is going to go against Islamic scruples, but it's not against the scruples of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. It's not against the scruples of John in Revelation 5. Sorry, Dr. Wood, you're not getting anywhere here. Now, I have a question for my Muslim friends. Do you honor Jesus the same way you honor the Father? But even if he's right that it's saying that you have to honor Jesus in exactly the same ways, even if he's right about that, notice that the whole passage presupposes that Jesus and God are two, right? It's not enough to only worship the Father. You also need to honor the Son. And furthermore, if you don't honor the Son by failing to do that, you're dishonoring the Father. Not because the Son is the Father. No, 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 that's never implied that the Son just is the Father. It's never said that they're the same being. But it's because the Father has sent him, if you diss the messenger, you diss the one who sent the messenger. If you diss the Messiah, the anointed, you're dissing the one who anointed him. You're dissing the God whose Messiah he is. Right? But this, this whole line of thought here presupposes that Jesus and God are two. And in Revelation 5, we plainly see two objects of worship, not one. And incidentally, the grounds that are given for worshiping God in Revelation 4 are not the same as the grounds cited for worshiping Jesus in chapter 5. So it's not true that it only makes sense to worship somebody because of their essential nature, that their essential nature includes divinity. Not according to the New Testament. This is how Dr. Wood ends this short video. So if you want to say, look, David, I don't understand the Trinity and I only want a God who's really easy to understand. That's one thing. And I'd love to have that conversation with you. But you can't keep saying that Jesus doesn't claim to be God in the Bible because he obviously, obviously does. Wow. That is obviously, obviously overconfident. He's treating his own inferences drawn from Scripture which are based on his own unexamined and unargued-for assumptions, he's treating those inferences in the same way that he's treating the explicit assertions of Scripture. It's a dangerous game. The problem with it is an intelligent Muslim can see through it. When the Trinity's podcast continues, a later and longer attempt by Dr. David Wood to show that Jesus, in effect, does say, I am God. Worship me. second video is a bit longer, and I think it's more recent. It's entitled, Where Did Jesus Say, I Am God, Worship Me? Posted in November 2016. I'm going to skip over some parts of it so this episode doesn't go on terribly long. 
And at first, he sort of uh, gently mocks Muslims for constantly asking this question, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? He points out quite correctly that Jesus wouldn't have to directly say this in so many words. He might assert that he is God and that he should be worshipped by implying it. Well, sure, he might do that. The question is, did he do it? He gives a couple of throwaway comments, which I'm going to skip over because he doesn't really take the time to work through the scripture and explain it. He points out that there are going to be disputes about these passages. Yep, there sure are. And not just from Muslims, from Christians like me, too. The problem is that Dr. Wood is trying to foist a straightforwardly incoherent view on these writers, which is that Jesus and God have differed, and yet they're numerically one. I'm going to pick it up when he gets to his actual examples. This is about five minutes in or so. According to both the Bible and the Quran, there are certain claims that only God can truly make. Nope. For instance, God alone can correctly state that he created the universe. A mere human being can say the words, I created the universe, but the statement would be false coming from anyone other than God. Now that's a weird and poorly chosen example. Of course, Jesus never says, I created the cosmos. And just like we'd expect in the Gospels, he says things where clearly he assumes that it was God who created the cosmos. Look at Mark thirteen nineteen and Mark ten six. Who's God? It's the one that Jesus calls Father in the Gospel according to Mark. And yeah, of course he thinks that God created the cosmos on his own. He's a Jew. So not a promising start, but let's get to the examples that he's really going to dig into. So if Jesus said things that can only truly be said by God, we have to conclude that Jesus claimed to be God. Interestingly, Jews, Christians, and Muslims agree on many of the claims that can only truly be made by God. Let's look at a few. Surah 57, verse 3 of the Quran refers to Allah as the first and the last. The first and the last are two of Allah's 99 names. The Old Testament agrees that God is the first and the last, as we read in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. When Lord is written in all caps in the Old Testament, the term refers to Yahweh, the creator of the universe. So both the Bible and the Quran refer to God as the first and the last, since the first and the last is one of God's titles. Should a mere prophet be calling himself the first and the last? Well, why not? People we know from the Old Testament are occasionally referred to as gods. This is said by Jesus in John 10. Why couldn't a prophet say that in some sense, he's the first and the last? Note that Dr. Wood is treating this as if it's obvious that only God could truly say this. No, it's not obvious. You'll see why in a minute. That's exactly what Jesus does in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, where he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Reinterpret that one, Muslims. How about Christians? So what does it mean to say that you're first and the last? Now, in the passage from Isaiah, I take it that the point there was a God is saying he's the first God there ever was, and he's the last God that there will ever be. So eternally, at all times, past, present, and future, he's the only God. He's utterly unique. Yeah. Now, is Jesus saying that? There's no reason why you have to take it that way. 
he could be the first and last Savior, the first and last Lord, where the one Lord is distinguished from the one God, as you see many places in the New Testament. So, no, we don't have to foist on the scriptural authors that Jesus just is God, and yet the two of them are different. We just say he must be using the title first and last in a different sense. Tell me what Jesus really meant when he took a title which can only be applied to God and applied it to himself. Of course, that's just not what Jesus did at all, because you can't prove from Scripture or from reason that only God can truly say that I am the first and the last. Sorry. Human beings sin against one another, but there's a sense in which all sin is rebellion against God. Similarly, even though you and I may forgive one another for the wrongs we commit, only God can offer ultimate forgiveness. So the prophet David could say to God in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The Quran agrees that ultimate forgiveness belongs to God alone, for it asks in Surah 3 verse 135, And who can forgive sins except Allah? Now, if Allah, according to the Quran, is the only one who can offer true forgiveness, should a mere prophet claim to be able to forgive sins? No. In Mark 2, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus in order to be healed. Jesus' response causes the religious leaders to accuse him of blasphemy. We read in verses 5 through 12, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The scribes correctly recognized that only God can forgive sins. Yet Jesus, who referred to himself as the Son of Man, knowing their thoughts, replied that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then healed the paralytic, proving that he has authority to forgive our sins, something the Quran says only Allah has authority to do. Right, but the Christian should not agree with the Quran. The Christian should read this episode more carefully than Dr. Wood does. Bizarrely, you have the Christian defender here agreeing with Jesus' Jewish opponents and with the Quran against the gospel writers and against Jesus' own point. This is wildly backwards, and it's not hard to see. Now, in the passage from Mark, Jesus heals the man in order to show to them that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Again, by calling himself the Son of Man, he's distinguishing himself from the Ancient of Days. He's assuming a distinction between himself and his God. Of course he is. He's telling them that if he can do this miraculous work, that shows that he really does have God's authorization to forgive sins. The author of Mark just thinks that's obvious and doesn't bother to comment on it. The writer of Matthew adds a little extra bit there just to make sure you get it. So Jesus heals the guy, and in Matthew chapter 9, verse 8, the writer observes this, 
When the crowds saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God. Oh, so they think Jesus is God? Thank you, God, just for healing this guy. Oh, no, wait a second. They were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. To human beings like Jesus. So the unbelieving Jews, his opponents who don't want to accept him as Messiah, absurdly claim that it's blasphemy to forgive sins. It's not blasphemy for Jesus to do it because he's been authorized by God to do it. And he proves that he's been authorized by God to do it. And all the faithful people who are believing in Jesus or at least open to it, they realize, aha, this guy's been given the authority. That's amazing that God would give somebody authority to forgive sins and to heal diseases. They get it. Dr. Wood, that's the lesson a Christian is supposed to draw. Not that Jesus' opponents were right, that only God can forgive sins, but that amazingly, God really did give this right of forgiving sins to another. Does the Quran say that God couldn't possibly do that? Sorry, Quran, you're in conflict with the Gospels. Next, he brings up that Jesus is the judge, and mustn't he be God if he's the judge? Well, no, we've already seen why. And he makes the false dilemma that either Jesus is God himself or he's a mere prophet. The New Testament view, this is very explicit, is that he is a prophet, but he's not a mere prophet. He's the unique son of God and God's unique Messiah. And that is somebody who is greater than any mere prophet. Not that it's a small deal to be a prophet. It's a big deal. It's a big deal that like John the Baptist is a prophet. And it's a big deal if you're somebody like David. But Jesus is greater than those people doesn't mean he's God himself. doesn't even mean he has a divine nature. Again, it's a false dilemma to say that either he's God himself or he's a mere prophet. The Islamic view is that Jesus is a mere prophet. He's not even the greatest of the prophets. Yeah, but that's not the New Testament view. Nor is it the New Testament view that Jesus is God himself. If that were the New Testament view, the New Testament would be contradicting itself because it also implies continually that there are differences between them. Back to Dr. Wood. In Psalm 31, verse 5, the prophet David refers to God as the God of truth. According to Surah 22, verse 6 of the Quran, Allah is the truth. The truth, al-Haq, like the first and the last, is one of Allah's 99 names. Knowing that God refers to himself as the truth, would a prophet ever call himself the truth? Jesus does in John 14, verse 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So in the same sentence, he refers to the Father, which means the one God, and he refers to the Father as someone else. Because we think we've got to prove that Jesus is God himself, we've got this unproven premise that we just pulled out of nowhere that only God could truly say that he's the truth. Right? That's not self-evident nor is it asserted anywhere in Scripture. Even though in this very sentence, God is someone else, he's going to say, nope, Jesus is trying to say that he's God himself. Really, is Jesus that confused? I think somebody's confused here, but it's not Jesus, and it's not the author of John either. The Bible and the Quran agree that God is the one who will raise the dead. According to 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol 
and raises up. Similarly, in Surah 22, verse 7, the Quran says that Allah shall raise up those who are in the graves. Since God is the one who raises the dead at the resurrection, would we ever expect a mere prophet to tell his followers that he will resurrect the dead? In John 5, verses 25 through 29, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Ding, 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 ding. So, the Father, that is God, gave Jesus the authority to execute judgment, because he's the Son of Man, the one destined for this great kingdom. He's going to be the King of the Jews and have an everlasting kingdom on the throne of David. This is what's predicted back in Daniel. You're going to say that Jesus here is claiming to be God himself, and the way he does it is to say that God gave him authority to execute the judgment, because he's this person who is portrayed as someone other than God in this famous prophecy. That's just unbelievable. Dr. Wood, our Muslim friends can read the interpretation you're trying to foist on us here, you're saying, surely, surely, surely only God himself could judge. Well, surely not. According to this text, God gave the authority to someone else, to Jesus. God doesn't get authority to judge from anybody. Anybody who has been given authority by someone else to judge, well, that ain't God, because God just intrinsically has that authority as our creator and sustainer. These are remarkably bad arguments, and they're remarkably bad interpretations. There's a confusion here, but the confusion is not in the text. The confusion is the theology that's being foisted on it, that's being read into it. I'm putting it bluntly, because Dr. Wood is a blunt kind of guy, and I know he can take it. Now, as he's talking here, Dr. Wood has put some verses from this chapter of John on the screen, and he doesn't read this part, but after what he read, it says this, Martha says to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So Martha gets it. He's not saying that he's God himself. He's saying that he's God's anointed one, God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's unique Son. So no, Jesus can't possibly be implying here that he is God himself by saying that he's the resurrection and the life. Nor could the author be implying that. It would be incompetent writing. Hey, I'm God himself. Oh, I'm somebody else. No, a good writer doesn't do that. Maybe one who's schizophrenic or just very confused might say that, but not the Apostle John, right? If Jesus is only a prophet, wouldn't this be blasphemy? Yeah, but what if he's God's unique Messiah? No blasphemy, huh? When the Trinity's podcast returns, will God ever share his glory with another?
The Quran tells us in Surah 57, verse 1, that whatever is in the heavens and the earth declares the glory of Allah. In the Old Testament, we find that God will not share his glory with anyone. God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And the next verse says, nor my praise to graven images, that is to idols. This will be relevant as we think about what this passage means. Clearly, no prophet is going to say that he will be glorified with God, let alone that he had glory with God before the world well, was according created. According to the Islamic view, sure. But in John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Is this the sort of thing prophets say? Generally, no. But it is the sort of thing that the Messiah would say. Our Muslim friends are quite mistaken in thinking that Jesus is just yet another prophet like David or Moses, or even Isaiah or Jeremiah. Now, according to the New Testament, and this is in many passages, you can look them up, God has glorified Jesus. And we already heard the passage from Revelation chapter 5, where the two of them are being worshipped together, although on different bases. Still, this is astounding that anybody could be raised up to that level. But this is what Christians have always taught God did for his human Messiah. He raised him, and he exalted him to his own right hand, and put him in charge of the church, and someday he's coming back and he will rule the whole world for God, as was prophesied back in Daniel. Now, what's going on here? How can God say he's never going to give his glory to another, and yet give glory to another? Well, look at the context, the context which Dr. Wood declined to read, but which anybody can read. In Isaiah, God, through the prophet, is saying he's not going to share people's worship with idols. Well, he isn't, and he never has done that. He's never authorized idolatry or the worship of these deities of the various pagan pantheons. He never said he wasn't going to share his glory with his own unique beloved son, in fact, you kind of see him reflecting God's glory in the transfiguration in the Gospels. And he just has been given glory. It doesn't take anything away from God. As a matter of fact, Paul says that when you worship the glorified and exalted Jesus, you're thereby worshiping God. You're thereby giving honor to the one who so raised him. Not because the Father is the Son, but because to honor the Son is to honor the Father. It's not that hard. Is all of this consistent with Jesus being divine in some sense? Yes, it depends what you mean by divine. We'll have to ask whether or not what you mean by divine is consistent with his being a real human and not merely an apparent human. These are big issues. It's not consistent with Jesus being numerically identical to God, where you just have Jesus as God himself and God just as Jesus himself. You can't read the New Testament like that. Okay, in this last portion, Dr. Wood's going to kind of machine gun the listener with points. In Mark 2.28, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 22.41-45, he proves that he is the Lord of the prophet right. David. His Messiah. In John 8.39-58, Jesus says that he has seen the prophet Abraham. Nope, that's what the opponents 12, say. In Matthew 12.6, Jesus claims to be greater than God's temple. Sure. Jesus tells us that he has an absolutely unique relationship with the Father, mm -hmm. that he can answer prayers, yep. that he is present wherever his followers are gathered, mm -hmm. that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, has been and that given he is to with me. his followers forever. 
He even makes the startling declaration that all things that the Father has are mine. Right, because God has given to them Jesus, to him. According to Jesus, all people must honor him just as we honor the Father. He says in John 5, verses 21 to 23, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, given. so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Right. He who does not honor the like Son you see in Revelation does not honor the and Father. In Philippians 2. Since one of the ways we honor the Father is by worshiping him, and since Jesus says that we have to honor the Son the same way we honor the Father, Jesus was demanding worship. It should come as no surprise that Jesus' followers worshipped him on numerous occasions. The Gospel tells us that Jesus was worshipped shortly after his birth, during his ministry, after his resurrection, but before his ascension to heaven, and after his ascension to heaven. Yeah, there's a problem there, and I discussed this in my lecture called Who Should Christians Worship? The problem is that the main word we translate as worship, proskuneo, can also mean just the obeisance, the honor, which is given to a monarch. So he mentioned there when the wise men who have come from afar find the young Jesus and they worship him, that's because they believe that he's destined to be the king of Israel. And so to even translate as worship is misleading to us. We usually now in English reserve the term worship for God. Although, you know, the traditional Anglican marriage ceremony has the husband and wife say to one another, with my body, I thee worship. Worship can just mean honoring, which is given between family members or a husband and wife or the subject to the governor. Or it can be specifically religious honor, which is in the Old Testament reserved for God alone. But in the New Testament perspective, for Jesus to be raised and exalted to God's right hand is just to be put in a position where he must be worshipped. Dr. Larry Hurtado has made the point many times in many places, in presentations and in books, the New Testament view is that Jesus is worshipped not because he's God himself, but rather out of obedience to the God who installed him in that position. That's exactly right. Keep that in mind when you're looking at places in the New Testament where he's worshipped. He's worshipped in the full religious sense after his resurrection and especially after his exaltation. He is honored in various ways before that, but probably not properly speaking worshipped. Jesus' disciple Thomas even addressed him in John 20 verse 28 as my Lord and my God. Well, was Thomas addressing Jesus alone? He was standing in front of Jesus alone, but a better way to take this is that he's making a double confession of the one Lord and the one God, just like you see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you're wondering what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let me recommend Trinity's podcast episodes 14, 15, and 16. There's a lot of nonsense out there nowadays about how Paul is modifying the Shema and sticking Jesus in the Shema. And so he's now somehow reconfigured monotheism so that monotheism allows multiple divine persons or multiple divine beings. No, what's going on there is a new usage of the term Lord. It no longer just means sir or is a substitute for Yahweh based on Psalm 110.1. They use it for the one who's been exalted to God's right hand by God. And they confess, just as we believe in one God, that's the Father, we also believe in one Lord, that's the risen and exalted Lord, because that prophecy said, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
admittedly, there are some Bible commenters who take Dr. Wood's reading that Thomas is calling Jesus his God. Okay, but you also have to keep in mind what's nearby in the same book. A couple verses later, the author tells you that the entire point of this book is that Jesus is, drumroll please, God? No, it's that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that would be kind of a letdown if he had just implied, the author, that Jesus is God himself. And let's also not forget what went before in this very same chapter, in the very same book. Jesus told Mary that he was about to ascend to his father and to her father, to his God and to her God. But Jesus has a God. Is Jesus being identified as God himself here? If so, the author thinks that the one true God has a God over him, which is just nonsense. John doesn't think that. In the context of the rest of the New Testament, when you realize this new usage of the term Lord for the risen and exalted Lord Messiah, then it makes perfect sense. Thomas is portrayed here as the first person making this double confession. Not only is there one God, but there's also one Lord. So, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? Nowhere. As we've seen, Jesus claimed to be the first and the last, the forgiver of sins, the final judge, All the truth, the and the resurrection. Sorry. Jesus proclaimed that he had glory with the Father before the world was created, mm -hmm. that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and of King David, yep. that he had seen Abraham, and no, that he is greater Abraham. than That's God's temple. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. He can answer prayers. He is with his followers no matter where they are. He has total authority on Give earth and in heaven. He is with his followers forever, and he owns everything. Jesus even demanded that he be honored just as the Father is honored, and this includes because God worship. wills it. These are not the claims of a mere human being. They're not even the claims of a mighty prophet. These are claims only God can truly make. Nope. You haven't done anything. You haven't given us one shred of reason to think that only God can do those things. And in fact, the reasons against it are staring us right in the face. Jesus is different from God, so we know he's not the same being. And yet, Jesus is doing these things, so it must be false that only God can do those things. Furthermore, in some of the cases, it explicitly says that God has given him the authority or the power to do these things. So, of course, he's not God. These are terrible, terrible arguments. If these arguments strike anybody as powerful, it may be, honestly, because they're only just like reading Jesus as God apologists. How about we get our head into the actual primary sources? And this is why Christians believe that Jesus is God. Not this Christian. Since Son there's just too much to reinterpret here if you want to claim that Jesus was only a prophet, our Muslim friends will now have to insist that the Bible's been corrupted. Unfortunately for our Muslim friends, I made this video, proving that the Quran affirms the inspiration, preservation, and authority of our scriptures. Click the video to see Allah commanding Christians to judge by the scriptures we have, and you'll understand that because the scriptures we have proclaim the deity of Christ in numerous ways, we can't obey the Quran without rejecting the Quran. Well, that's a clever argument. Clearly, the Quran is conflicted about how it views the Christian scriptures. Let me say something now to our Muslim friends. The lesson you should take away from this is Christians come up with a lot of theories about Jesus and God. Some of those theories conflict with the Bible. 
this is not anything new. This is why we had a Protestant Reformation just about exactly 500 years ago. God help us, we get ourselves in trouble with our speculations. Dr. Wood has this idea in his head, and it comes from pop evangelical theology, that Jesus just is God himself. It's not consistent with the text. It's not even clear that it's consistent with the old-time Catholic theology either. But my point to you is this. The main clash between Christianity and Islam is, who are you going to follow, Jesus or Muhammad? Jesus is claiming to be something very high and mighty, something really amazing and really not at all like other prophets. But he's not claiming to be God himself. And no, he's not claiming to be the second person of the Trinity or to be eternal. Honestly, he's not claiming even to have a divine nature. He's claiming to be God's Messiah. And if you think that the omnipotent, almighty God couldn't raise and exalt such a being, well, that's what the New Testament says about Jesus. It's an iffy thing to believe a guy that comes along more than 500 years later and contradicts what these primary sources say, primary sources, at least most of which were written in the first century, and which seem to have been written by apostles or people who were companions of the apostles. They say that Jesus was crucified. They said that Jesus was God's Messiah. They have Jesus forgiving sins and being destined to be glorified and worshipped and to judge the world. Well, maybe God can do more with human beings than you would like to assume that he can do. The New Testament view is this doesn't take any glory away from God. It shows all the more how amazing God is because he can accomplish the salvation of the human race through his human Messiah. Understandably, many Muslims have a problem with the idea of atonement, Jesus dying for our sins. Well, in any case, you don't have to think that that's God himself dying for our sins, because no, God can't die. Of course, there's nothing incoherent in the idea of a sacrifice. And it's not clear that the doctrine of atonement requires a Christian to say that God can't forgive unless somebody gets killed. That is an assumption that a lot of Christian theorizers make, but it's not something that's explicitly said. So did Jesus ever say, I am God, worship me? No, he didn't say that. What he said is, before Abraham was, I am, that is, I am the one. I am destined to be God's Messiah. That's what he means, by the way. He's not actually claiming to have seen Abraham in that part of the Gospel of John. Check out Trinity's podcast episodes 62 and episode 66 if you want to see why it makes sense to read that passage in this way. So no, he doesn't say that he's the God of Exodus He says that he is, in God's eternal plan, the Messiah. So he doesn't say, I am God, worship me. But God does say, when Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son. And when Jesus undergoes his transfiguration on the mountain in front of three of his disciples, he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Are you listening? Jesus never said, worship me. However, when he raised and exalted him, God, in doing that, said, worship Jesus. Everybody understood the implication. That's why the worship of Jesus is assumed in the New Testament. Again, they're not worshiping him because he's God or because he's divine in the same way that God is divine. They're worshiping him because God has exalted him to his right hand. They're worshiping him because he deserves honor because of what he's accomplished in his obedience and submission to God. He's redeemed followers from all the tribes of the world. 
Of course, that's still going on. Are you going to get in on it? My Muslim friends, take Jesus seriously. Don't get distracted by the fun game of pointing out bad arguments. That matters. We want to be critical thinkers. We don't want to accept unsound arguments. Don't let that be a distraction from taking Jesus seriously. I know this is confusing. According to Dr. Wood, the Christian message is one thing, and according to me, it's another. I'm going to end by playing an excerpt from the book called Acts in the New Testament. This is the earliest known record of a Christian sermon. This is the Apostle Peter, filled with God's Spirit, preaching to the people of Jerusalem. As you listen to this, ask yourself which version of the gospel this sounds like. Is Jesus being presented as God himself, or is Jesus being presented as someone else, indeed a man, God's Messiah? Whoever calls out to the Lord for help will be saved. Listen to these words, fellow Israelites. Jesus of Nazareth was a man whose divine authority was clearly proven to you by all the miracles and wonders which God performed through him. And you yourselves know this, for it happened here among you. In accordance with his own plan, God had already decided that Jesus would be handed over to you, and you killed him by letting sinful men crucify him. But God raised him from death, setting him free from its power, because it was impossible that death should hold him prisoner. For David said about him, I saw the Lord before me at all times. He is near me, and I will not be troubled. And so I am filled with gladness, and my words are full of joy. And I, mortal though I am, will rest assured in hope, because you will not abandon me in the world of the dead. You will not allow your faithful servant to rot in the grave. You have shown me the paths that lead to life, and your presence will fill me with joy. My friends, I must speak to you plainly about our famous ancestor, King David. He died and was buried, and his grave is here with us to this very day. He was a prophet, and he knew what God had promised him. God had made a vow that he would make one of David's descendants a king, just as David was. David saw what God was going to do in the future, and so he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah when he said, He was not abandoned in the world of the dead. His body did not rot in the grave. God has raised this very Jesus from death, and we are all witnesses to this fact. He has been raised to the right side of God, his Father, and has received from him the Holy Spirit as he had promised. What you see now and hear is his gift that he has poured out on us. For it was not David who went up into heaven. Rather, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit here at my right side until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. All the people of Israel then are to know for sure that this Jesus whom you crucified is the one that God has made Lord and Messiah. Each one of you must turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins will be forgiven. And you will receive God's gift, the Holy Spirit. For God's promise was made to you and your children and to all who are far away, all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Save yourselves from the punishment coming on this wicked people.
This week's thinking music has been Where Are Your Friends by Art of Escapism. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.